Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As we continue to fight our way through this pandemic, the question is, what will America and the world look like on the other side? What will we have learned? How will we have changed? One of the world's great public thinkers, Fareed Zakaria of CNN and the Washington Post, has written a great book called Ten Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. I sat down with Fareed, a return visitor to the Axe Files, to take stock of where we are and where we're going. Here's that conversation. Fareed Zakaria, so, so good to see you again. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, well, the first time we got together, we spent a lot of time on your uh, extraordinary life and journey. Uh, it seems propitious at this moment to talk about the uh, life and journey of the planet, of humanity, <laughs> and, uh, and of, uh, uh, of uh, the uh, Western democracies uh, as we know them. Uh, and you capture a bunch of that in your extraordinary book, 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. I, if you were here, you would see that I've, it's well-read because I've turned over a lot of pages, flapped a lot of pages here. But I was wondering, that book came out in the fall. Um, when did you, when did you uh, send that manuscript away? How long in this journey of the pandemic were we when you wrote the book? So I took a, a big risk, David, which is right at the start of the pandemic, I started to think about, you know, what does this all mean? Partly, I got to confess, I suddenly had a lot of free time on my hands, right? Yes. All, all travel was canceled, all, you know, business meals, yeah. lunches, dinners. So, so you I'm, did what anybody would do. You write this, uh, you write a book, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I, I, I spent a bunch of time with my kids, but I still had a lot of time left mm -hmm. over. And... I started to try and sketch out what was, you know, what were the main themes, partly for, for my television show, part for the columns. Um, but I realized that I, I, there was something bigger here to, to, to explain, to, to try to understand myself. So what I started to do was I talked to my publisher and said, I think there may be a book here. And I would get up at about 6, 6.30 in the morning, and I wouldn't look at any of the day's news because I felt like that was going to get me distracted into all the debates about Fauci and Trump and, the, you know, particularly with Trump, the madness. So I would just sit and think about the longer term and I would read, I would research and I'd write. Um, and I'd sometimes make phone, you know, make no notes to myself that I had to call people to try to understand something better. Um, and I just got at it and I started doing it in mid-March and I finished basically in June. In the middle of June, I sent the manuscript. 
Um, and I was it, I was nervous because it was a kind of high wire act because partly I was sort of figuring out, you, you know, I had to first understand the science to be sure that the vaccines would be out in reasonably short order and that therefore there would be a post-pandemic world. Um, and then I had to kind of make sure that I got it right enough that by the time the book appeared, it did not seem that I had massively misunderstood it or, yeah. you know, that the contours looked right. So it, I did it all in the first few months of the pandemic. Now, looking back, we're sitting here, 500,000 Americans dead, 2.5 million uh, around the world. Uh, did you, are there things that you did not foresee uh, if you were, if you were, uh, if you're to have another edition of this book, is there a forward that you would write based on events that we've seen? Obviously, there've been de- uh, events in our own democracy, and as we'll talk about, uh, governance and and politics are part of this discussion. But the pandemic itself has, you know, exceeded uh, most people's worst expectations. Uh, although the scientists were warning us of this possibility. Um, Anything surprise you about how this thing has unfolded? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, at, at several levels. Um, first, I think that uh, the, the, the degree to which there have been um, really extraordinary differences in the performance of countries, and I don't mean just at the governmental level, you know, as you know, I, I cover that in the book a lot. But if you notice, for example, uh, India, um, which hasn't done a particularly good, uh, ha- hasn't had a particularly good response. COVID numbers are just dropping, plunging over there. Latin America was very badly hit. Generally speaking, South Asia was not. Uh, in Nigeria, has had one two hundredth as many cases as the United States um, per capita. So there's something bizarre going on that we don't totally understand, and I think it's a it's an important act of humility to recognize there's still a lot we don't understand here. At the level of some of the things I talked about in the book, the thing that has, I think, surprised me the most is um, there there is part of, I I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the the degree to which governmental effectiveness uh, had to do with whether you did well or badly. I, I probably should have thought a little bit more about societal effect, you know, effectiveness. In other words, some piece of this is not just about the government, it's about us as a society. So you notice that the, the places that did well in East Asia, there is a kind of collective sense of, uh, we're in this together, we have to make this work. You know, mask wearing is a, is a perfect metaphor for this because the mask doesn't fundamentally protect you, it protects another person, the other people. And so in in wearing a mask, you are engaging in a kind of social contract where you say, I will protect you, you will protect me, and together we will be safe. It turns out that that was much easier to, to do in countries like East Asia, democracies, dictatorships, Vietnam, South Korea, all of them, where there's a, a stronger sense of that collective uh, enterprise. In, in the West, it, it, it's not just the United States, the individualism which is wonderful in many areas, has proved to be a limiting factor. So you saw even in France, after they got it down, the French just said, it to hell with this. And they went on vacation in August and they saw a huge spike up. Even in Germany, uh, which probably handled it best among the big Western countries, you saw, you've just seen this over the last few weeks where people are just tired of this. 
They feel like, why the, you know, who's the government to tell us what to do? Yes. That, you know, that sort of social differentiation uh, is interesting. Whereas in Japan, because they are so <laughs> completely collectively minded, they barely had a, you know, they never really had a spike because their, their yeah. normal modus operandi is so much to be careful about things like this. Uh, I was looking at some statistics before we uh, started, uh, and I always like to check in on South Korea because they were very aggressive to begin with. If you scaled up South Korea to our population, they would have had about 1,700, I think, deaths now. Oh, it's crazy, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, we're at 500, we're at 500,000. Let's talk about, I'm going to try and be orderly about this, but that's not actually my habit and uh, the conversation will stray, I'm sure. Uh, but I want to follow through these lessons that, you, uh, that you've uh, laid down uh, in this book. And the first one seems to me to be in some ways um, uh, important in that everything else is sort of derivative of it. Uh, it's called uh, the, the uh, lesson is buckle up. And one of the things you said is we've created a world that is always in overdrive. Human development has accelerated over the past two decades, and that pace has quickened in the past few uh, decades. Um, you know, this, this is something that I think about a lot and something that concerns me, which is that technology has so accelerated, uh, you know, the pace of things and the pace of discovery and, and has made so many changes and has created a sense of unease in a lot of people, uh, the pace of that change. And if you live in a democracy, uh, you know, our democracies are structured to move slowly when people are divided. Uh, I mean, we have mechanisms built in to create gridlock uh, when, we are, uh, when we are divided. So you have this mismatch between change that's coming faster and faster and democracy uh, that is is gridlocked because there's such division. And it strikes me that that is sort of a self-perpetuating and unhealthy uh, cycle. So uh, yeah, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. And then just talk a little bit about how the pace of change has uh, contributed to uh, what we're seeing now uh, through the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, you, you add a very interesting political twist to it, the point you make about democracies, which is Something I don't do in the book, but it's a very that's a very shrewd observation. So the point I'm sort of trying to make, make in that chapter is, you know, one way of thinking about it is just imagine everything we're seeing right now, and we're going to have two billion more people on the planet, and every country is growing. So you're going to probably add another billion or or a billion and a half to the lower middle class, consuming more, living in cities, eating more meat, um, you know. Can we, uh, how is that going to work on this planet? You know, think about what that does to all the pressure points we are looking, we're witnessing right now. So think about just the sheer quantity of meat we are going to eat as you know, this happens almost as night, uh, as, as the night, the day, the, as you get richer, you eat more animal protein and you, you tend to eat more, more meat cows, that is, who are massive emitters of methane. I think they, something like 13 or 14% of all uh, carbon emissions in the world is, you know, uh, uh, it comes from cows. So you you denude the forests, you de you you destroy the natural habitat of animals, and they start living closer and closer to human beings, which is largely why these these viruses hop from animals to humans. You generate more enemy energy, you put more carbon dioxide in the air. 
people are living closer and closer to the edges of forests, which then produces the spark that creates the forest fire. You know, you put all this together and you ask yourself, like, how are we going to do it over the next 40 years if we're adding 2 billion people to the planet? Um, it, it, It cries out for us to be thinking much more carefully about resilience, sustainability, you know, buying insurance in a sense for, for the system. And then you added a very interesting twist, which I do deal with a little bit, but not, but not enough, which is the pace of change produces winners and losers. So you're almost generating these divisions in society and democracies don't function well with these deep divisions. I mean, one of the things I always tell people when they say, why can't we, you know, the Democrats be like Lyndon Johnson again? Lyndon Johnson had a two-third majority in both houses of Congress. You know, Franklin Roosevelt comes in in 1932 with a two-third majority in both houses of Congress. Yes, it's much easier to get stuff done when you're in that situation. But we are not, and we're not likely to be for a long time. So in that circumstance, it does look like China is able to weather and navigate the the uh, you know the pressure the pandemic much better than we are, but I think even there even they have to think about you you know you can't keep growing the way China is growing without having substantial negative impacts on the planet. You know, there's a this wonderful speech I quote from Joshua Lederberg, Nobel Prize winning biologist, who says you know the big mistake human beings make, and this is why they may be so complacent is. We think nature will take care of us. We think nature is fundamentally benign or favorably disposed towards human beings. But he says, you know, nature is just a bunch of physics and chemistry. And you push it, you push those equations in the wrong direction, and you could trigger, you know, a chemical physical reaction that ends life on Earth. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the challenges, particularly for democracies, is we we've never been very good at making decisions in the present to deal with challenges that may emerge in the future. That runs counter to the sort of gestalt of politicians who want to please people in the present. And so asking people to make sacrifices for the future um, is a difficult thing. I mean, one of the, as you know, uh, I mean, one of the um, things the Chinese have been doing around the world is essentially making the argument that democracies are ill-suited for these challenges uh, and that, uh, you know, autocracies uh, are built uh, better for that because they can move quickly. They, you know, they don't have to brook these debates and so on. Um, you know, the, the, your second lesson, by the way, is what matters is not the quantity of government, but the quality. Um, and, and talk about that. Talk about um, how... Uh, how governments uh, play into this and how in this particular crisis, uh, y- you know, you mentioned that some governments reacted better than others, but that isn't necessarily determinative. Uh, but clearly it makes a difference. I mean, if, for example, our government had reacted differently, uh, would we be at 500,000 uh, dead at this point? Um, no, there's, there's, there's overwhelming evidence and you can, you can, you know, you can do this pretty well in terms of simulations that had the United States government got ahead of the game, had there been a federally mandated mass testing system, uh, we would be in a much different place. Uh, I think that the Chinese argument, by the way, is also fundamentally wrong. It's not about democracy versus dictatorship. Um, it's, it, if you look at the best performing country, 
It's probably Taiwan, which technically is not a country, but you know what I mean. Uh, South Korea, again, very, very strong. But I like to look at Taiwan because it's actually a big, open, messy, raucous democracy. Um, and yet, Taiwan, with 22 million people, has, I think the last time I checked, it had nine COVID deaths. Just to give people a point of comparison, Taiwan is 22 million people, New York State is 19 million people, and we have 40,000 dead in New York, right? So they have nine, we have 40,000, um, and their population is bigger. Why? Because they acted early, they acted aggressively, and they acted intelligently. The early and the aggressive, we understand. Here's the intelligent part. The guy running the Taiwanese opera, uh, healthcare system, the vice president, um, who, by the way, is a Johns Hopkins trained epidemiologist. And this is the this great irony here is most of, most of the East Asians who did, who did well were trained in the United States. So it's like we're teaching them the secret sauce and then they go and apply it in, in, uh, in their countries. Yeah, that's a whole um, other discussion. But Yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 so he said that the key thing was to understand that you had to go fast, you had to go early, and you had to be intelligent in realizing that the key was to take the small number of people who were infected or potentially infected and really isolate them. So the key was not testing, tracing, it's the isolation of the sick and potentially sick. Now, he pointed out that all the people uh, who, who were who were isolated like that in Taiwan added up to 200,000 people. In other words, 1% of Taiwan's population. But by doing that, by requiring that those people do 14-day quarantines, you were able to let the other 99% live normal lives. So his point was a lockdown is a sign that you have failed. The, the, the really intelligent policy is to quickly keep isolating the sick and potentially sick, but really isolating them so that everyone else can go about business as usual. This is also the, the strategy that the South Koreans are, uh, ad adopted, the Singaporeans, the, in Hong Kong, in Vietnam. So we were not able to, to fundamentally act either early or aggressively or intelligently, uh, which strikes me as the most bizarre. You know, people say, OK, you wouldn't have been able to get Americans to do that uh, in a democracy. Well, as I say, Taiwan and South Korea were democracies. But let's say it was difficult. We could have bribed people to do this. I mean, we could have put people up in the Four Seasons Hotel. Uh, you know, the, the cost of isolating people in, in total... Or the, or the Trump. Or the Trump. The cost of isolating people would have been nothing compared to the cost of the lockdown, which was in the trillions, right? Yeah. And, so, and yet we never were able to do that. See, if we had, dead, if we had said, let's put them up in the Trump, uh, we could have actually bribed the leader in order to uh, do the right thing, not just the people who got to stay there. Uh, but that might have gotten his attention. I wish I, I actually wish somebody had thought of that. I, I'd have been willing to give him the money for, for that. We do have this system of federalism here. And, um, you know, one thing that e even if the federal government were uh, operating in an intelligent way, as you say, uh, you know, so much of the authority uh, flows to the states. Uh, and so that attenuated nature of administration uh, also contributes to uneven results. And if one state fails, all the good efforts of another state have limited impact. So that's another complicating factor, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the, look, one of the things about American uh, America's federal structure is that we generally look at the, you know, this is typically American, I suppose, we look at the good side to it. 
what Brandeis called the lab- laboratories of democracy. They, each of these places doing its own thing. And that's definitely true. And there's a lot of bottom-up innovation that can happen. But there are also, you know, real costs. And in public health, uh, I think we need to think this through more. There is a real danger here because you can't do a national lockdown, right? I mean, by de- by definition, the lockdowns are loose and leaky because every state does its own thing. You can't have national standards. You can't have national testing. You can't have national mask wearing mandates. So, by the way, the, 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 you see the same problem in elections. I mean, it's kind of crazy that in the United States we have ballots varying from county to county and standards varying. So you're right about it. I would argue this is a good example of where the Trump and uh, administration and Trump fell short. As you know well, David, that it is possible, but it requires heroic efforts on the part of the, the federal government and particularly the White House. I remember um, talking to Sylvia Burwell Matthews, who was Obama's HHS secretary, about this. And she said, look, at the end of the day, if you don't have somebody in the White House getting you know, every morning, calling, making 25 phone calls and saying, the president of the United States wants you to do this and direct these funds and you've got to move in this direction, you'll never get the federal agencies on board. You'll never get the states on board. But if you do it and if you do it every day, you, you you know you can make this machine work it's just a lot of work it's a lot of energy it's a lot of effort and for trump who really fundamentally regarded uh the presidency as a reality television show you know he 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 didn't really think he that part of the job was sort of doing stuff it was tweeting and you know it was all symbolic politics well, so right. if if you take it seriously i think you could make a difference and that's where i i fault the trump most yeah, yeah, you do. didn't really ever take this seriously. Yeah, I remember, uh, in fact, then Vice President Biden was uh, in charge of the Recovery Act when I was in the White House. And it operated very, very well, partly because he was on the phone every single day uh, with federal bureaucrats, with governors, with mayors, with local other local officials to make sure that it operated as it was uh, intended. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Your third lesson is markets are not enough. And what was interesting about it is you quote in that chapter, an editorial from the Financial Times, which is not known as a kind of left publication. And they said governments will have to accept a more active role in the economy. They must see public services as investments rather than liabilities and look for ways to make labor markets uh, less insecure. And you offered your own uh, judgment about the U.S. and you, you, you described as a weak malfunctioning state, highly unequal access to healthcare relief systems that help people with capital and connections much more than those uh, who work for their wages. Um, and all of this has been sort of highlighted by the pandemic uh, in the winners and losers uh, of, of it. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. You know, if you think if you think about uh, what the, the 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 Reagan and Thatcher revolution were about, they were about saying that the problems we face right now are problems that can be solved by letting the market rip. 
Um, and it may have been true that there was too much regulation and too much stagnation and low productivity in the 70s, um, and you needed some market discipline to open things up. But right now, if you look at what, what markets are doing, where the economy is headed, you have an information revolution that is massively uh, uh, enriching and empowering uh, people like us. You know, I mean, I think uh, Bob Reich put it very well. He described the rise of symbolic analysts, meaning people who manipulate words, numbers, images uh, for a living. And that's all of us, you know, businessmen, lawyers, accountants, yeah, yeah. right? And then, and if you think about the people who manipulate physical things for, for a living, they're doing much worse. Their, their wages don't go up. They don't have access to capital. They don't have the ability to surf this, this new wage. They're competing against some guy in China or India who's making the same physical object at a tenth the price. So that's what the economy, this hyper-efficient economy is producing. It's producing massive monopolies in the, in the, in the most crucial areas of life. Uh, I, most people wouldn't even know what Amazon's closest competitor is because there really isn't one, or Google's. Uh, or Facebook's, right? So you have these massive monopolies. You have low uh, in, uh, growth of entrepreneurship. So you have all these problems, rising inequality because labor has no pricing power left. And you can't say, let the market solve this because the market is solving this. It's, yeah. it's very, it's, it, the most efficient thing is for us to buy, all of us to buy everything on Amazon. The, the market is, is giving us an answer. And I think what we have to recognize is Politics has to solve these problems because the market can't. Politics has to come in to create more genuine competition. It has to come in to provide some kind of voice and, and bargaining power for people who work with their hands and not their head. Politics has to come in to try to, in some way, you know, navigate this new world so that people have equality of opportunity and you don't have a self-reinforcing meritocracy where again, people like you and me can send our kids to good schools, can have them take good uh, remedial education, go on extracurriculars, and then, hey, it looks like we're just using merit, but somehow it's you know, fifty yeah. percent uh, of the of the of the of the uh, people in Ivy League schools today uh, have gone to private schools, and private, and only five percent of Americans go to private schools. Right, something is wrong there when you're you, when you're able to take fifty percent of your class on pure, you know, supposedly purely on merit on those terms. So all of these are problems that the market can't solve. And so my plea is we have to recognize that and let politics solve it. I want to get to, uh, to uh, a positive example that you strike for a country that is doing a good job on this. But first, and I'm, I'm in the interest of uh, time, I'm already consolidating, but it seems relevant to say, the virus is going to make inequality worse. And that's your lesson seven. Inequality will get worse. And I'm struck. I was struck as you were talking uh, about the fact that you and I are talking over Zoom. This is how I've done my work for the last year. This is how you've done yours. We haven't lost a paycheck. We probably both have money invested. The stock market did well. Uh, and you know, there are a whole bunch of people in this country who, who work with their hands, their backs, who farm, who, who don't have uh, those advantages. We call them essential workers in a crisis because the crisis exposes the fact that they actually make the country run in many ways and they are essential, but we don't treat them or value them uh, like essential workers. And, um, and we don't invest them either with the economic benefits or the dignity uh, that they 
they they deserve. But uh, getting back to your solutions um, uh, or, or a, a model, I should say, uh, you point to Denmark, uh, not as some sort of socialist bastion, but as a, a country that has uh, developed a social structure, uh, a, a safety net and a structure uh, that uh, has made it a better place to work and compete. Yeah, I think, you know, Northern Europe and Denmark in particular, Scandinavia, if you will, uh, is misunderstood by both the American right and the left. Uh, I think that, you know, if you look at it carefully, what you realize is, first of all, it's a very free market country. It's by the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom. Denmark is a more free economy than the United States because they have very low tariffs. They're very open to competitions, very easy to hire and fire. But the way they view it, the way I would put it is they view capitalism as the goose that lays the golden egg. They want to generate the wealth, but then they take that money, they have high rates of taxation, and they really invest in equality of opportunity. That means amazing childcare, great nutrition for everybody, including poor kids, uh, you know, nursery through PhD programs, free education, 100% free. Uh, universal health care, great public parks, great public transport. So what you're doing is you're leveling, you're, you know, you know you're, you're creating equality of opportunity so that you don't have these massive inbuilt advantages that rich and upper middle class people have in the United States. And it's what we should all want, right? It's, it's at the end of the day, we want the smartest, the most hardworking, the most talented people to move up. But we have somehow forgotten that that's the core of the American dream. And as I point out that the greatest tragedy about America right now is that it is easier for people to move up uh, in Denmark, in Sweden, in Canada than it is in the United States. The American dream used to be very simply expressed. You do better than your parents. And if you use that metric, the American dream is, is thriving in Europe, but not in America. Yeah, I mean, the percentage of, uh, of people who move up from the, from the bottom to the top is uh, is is painfully low here. Uh, the, the economic mobility is not a good story. You're, you're right, and and most Americans know that when you talk about the American dream in a focus group, for example, people scoff at it because they say, "Well, that's not really the way." And Trump himself, I think, mind that when uh, you know that sense in people that the the game was rigged against them. The question for Reed is whether. Uh, you know, capitalists and lovers of democracy recognize how much this is a threat to those fundamental uh, institutions. Uh, if people lose faith in in capitalism, if they lose faith in democracy as a place where they can can honestly compete, you're absolutely right. And, and yeah, yeah. And I talk about this, as you know, in that section about elites. Yes. Where I think one of the one of the things that's going on here, one of the dramas, is that there is a great um, distrust and resentment at the professional class in the United States and in the Western world. You see the same thing in Brexit. You see the same thing with the Gilets Jaunes in France. Uh, and the reason is, I think that, you know, people, people view these people as, uh, you know, arrogant, smug, out of touch, but they also question the degree to which they are really the best and the brightest as they present themselves to be. Right. I mean, is the system rigged in their favor? You know, how come the children of these elites get special privileges? How come they seem to be able to game the system? And the more, you know, that you, you and this is, you know, we're talking about this at the University of Chicago, which is the, 
you know, in a, in a way, perfect place to talk about this because Hutchins tried to make Chicago genuinely meritocratic. And I think in many ways, it is more meritocratic than any of the other elite universities in the United States, maybe with the exception of MIT and Caltech. But that sense that, you know, you, you, you have to try, you, you know, we're not, we're not practicing what we preach. We talk about meritocracy. We talk about, but actually there are huge numbers of informal ways that people get around this stuff. And we think people don't notice. And what the Trump phenomenon and what Brexit and what Gilles Jean show you is, no, people notice. Yeah. And they are beginning to have a no, you know, real resentment and anger toward these elites. Yes. And um, your, your next uh, lesson is people should listen to the experts and experts should listen to the people, which really gets to the core of this. There is real hostility to these elite experts. And we see it even in the virus, uh, you know, uh, rebellion against the public health experts who say, yes, you must wear a mask, you should shut down, you should, you know, quarantine, uh, and so on, because there is a sense that, uh, you know, the experts are essentially commanding people to do things that are not in their interest, but maybe in the interest of somehow interest of the elites. And Trump, you, you quote Trump in the book, uh, he, he, he waged war on the experts. He, uh, uh, he called them awful, I think, in the quote you used. And he always used to say, I know better than the experts. And people uh, responded. We saw the impact of that, uh, you know, and in your next chapter, you talk about the, the profound nature of digital life is digital. But, you know, Trump promoting quack remedies to the virus uh, and people responding to that. And it was kind of a big middle finger to the experts who said, no, that's not really uh, the way it is. Uh, but the reverse is true as well, which is if there's no sensitivity on the part of experts, uh, 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 as to how what they are prescribing, urging, affect people's lives. If they're not listening to the people uh, they are trying to influence, um, that has really deleterious effects. And um, you know, it's easy for you and me to sit here and say people should forego their paychecks. But if you live from paycheck to paycheck, uh, that's a difficult thing to do. If you've poured your life savings into a, a restaurant or a, a diner and you have to shut it down, that's a tough, that's a tough prescription. And um, uh, there is a sense of disconnect between the lives of people and the lives of elites. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that when that whole, uh, those debates about the lockdowns were going on, I, I, I felt exactly what you're describing, that every person who was on television advocating the lockdown talking about the importance of it, was doing so from a position where they had jobs, they had income, uh, they were comfortable, and the, and the, and the pandemic had only made, made them, give them more, gave them more free time, and they were being, maybe had to do things a little differently. But everyone who was listening to that with horror, with fear, with apprehension, were people who were going to lose their jobs, who were going to lose their income, who were being told by the government, you cannot operate your business. And I thought there was there was not not nearly enough sensitivity about that, you know. Yeah. And I think we we do this we do this in, in in case after case, even with regard to global warming and climate change, which I think is the transcendent issue of the day. I think we have to recognize that 
you know, if you were looking at, if somebody was looking at you and saying, you know, uh, I'm so sorry, but because of, for the fate of the planet, we have to ask you to, to, you know, for your, your, your magazine, your newspaper, your college, your consulting firm is going to have to shut down. Right. People would have a different response. And yes. it's not to say we shouldn't do that, but I think we have to approach it in a very different way. Farid, I, 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 I could not agree with you more. I, I, I've, I've said this to a lot of Democratic politicians. Democratic Party, you know, has become too much of a, a college-educated elite party, and it's hard to be the party of the working people when you're not listening uh, to them. No matter what, how good your intentions are, um, it, it is a it's it's a real problem. So life is digital. You know, I uh, uh, there's so much in here. I mean, this may be the most most important most profound change that we're, we, we've gone through. But, you know, I, this morning I was reading a, a website from a news website from uh, Michigan, and um, they were talking about the digital divide that has been underscored by this virus. 70 out of 83 counties uh, are uh, below the national average in connectivity. So there's this revolution that the, that the virus has created where people are getting healthcare through online. And uh, that is a positive thing to get healthcare to places where healthcare is needed. But the paradox is many of those places also don't have very good internet, or you can't connect, no broadband. Uh, kids, uh, you know, who are going to school in inner cities or rural areas uh, don't necessarily have the ability to connect to go to school online as they've been required uh, to do so in that sense, uh, the digital divide has been exposed as so many other inequities uh, by, uh, by this pandemic. So that's uh, one thing that occurred to me as I was reading your book, because you talk about how healthcare is going to be revolutionized by this, but it could be less effective unless people can actually get online. You know, let's start by, by saying what, what you did, which is that the positive side to this in, is enormous. I mean, we have made a leap into the digital age in a way that uh, is really extraordinary. You know, if you look at healthcare, it used to be that there were two big barriers. One, that people didn't want to go and see doctors online. There, there was a kind of psychological barrier. The second was the doctors didn't want to do it because they didn't get paid. And the pandemic broke through both barriers. First, you had no option. And secondly, Medicare started to decide we'll reimburse the doctors and all of a sudden, you now have a billion telehealth visits. And it's so much more efficient. You know, if you think about it, most people go to the doctor or basically have a headache and the doctor tells them, take an aspirin and call yes. me in the morning. That is, you know, for that to take two hours of the patient's time and 25 minutes of the doctor's time when the whole thing can be done in five minutes on Zoom. These are enormous efficiencies. And we're seeing them ripple through the economy. So there's, there's, there's real good news here. But as you say, again, we fall prey to this problem, which is we forget, uh, you know, not everyone has great uh, uh, broadband. Not everyone has great digital connections. I saw this personally myself because I have three kids and uh, two of them go to private schools and one went, went, was at a public school. And the one at the public school, it was very sad. It was a good school. These were very good people, but they just didn't have the resources to handle the pandemic. And so what they ended up doing was really giving the kids homework. You know, there was very little actual instruction. Um, and, uh, you know, and this is a good, high-functioning public school. So you can imagine what that looks like 
when you go further and further down in terms of the you know the the places that have less uh, lower property taxes and so much of this by the way is you know this education divide is produced by this very bizarre fact that we are the only advanced industrial country i know of where we fund education through property taxes which means that rich places get more money and poor places get less money whereas in fact you should be doing the opposite you know so if you look at china in china they spend more money per student in the poorest parts of the country compared to the richest parts which makes sense right those are the people who need the most whereas for us because we do it on the basis of local taxes um you have you have this perverse effect which is that the the you know rich kids with two parent families and you're learning at home get the best uh, you know get the highest per capita uh, funding and the places harlem with 95% poverty rates and single parent families get get the low you know get much lower per per, per student funding we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files and now Back to the show. On this digital uh, issue, you uh, you write that as COVID-19 accelerates the trend of digital retail overtaking real life retail over the next five years, by one estimate, over 100,000 brick and mortar stores will close three times the, the number shuttered during the Great uh, Recession. Um, and... Uh, Elsewhere, you uh, you say about a third of workers who were commuting to work uh, were working from home. Um, I mean, this portends uh, lasting changes in the way we work. Oh, I think it's going to be very dramatic. Look, um, I'll give you an example from my, from the, the, I write about this in the book, but the book is itself an example. So book publishing was actually up. Over the over the pandemic, because it turns out not everyone is watching Netflix. There are a few hardy souls reading books, uh, thank God. Um, but at the start of the pandemic, Amazon was thirty percent of the book sales market in America. It is now sixty five percent, best as I can tell. So, in other words, Amazon has doubled its market share. Guess who's guess who's lost out? It's the small mom and pop independent bookstores that don't have strong digital presence, that don't have strong delivery systems. And that's not just true of Amazon, it's true of Home Depot, it's true for what any anyone that was highly digital, highly global, highly diversified is thriving, and the smaller ones are doing badly. I don't know what it's like in Chicago, but I know that in New York, a third of the restaurants have closed. And even there, the restaurants that are surviving are the big, the chains, the ones with credit lines, you know. So I, I think we're going to see a big reshaping of the economy. It does provide an opportunity. And, you know, as you know, I, I talk about this at the at the end of the book. Uh, look, the, the, you know, you're going to have new businesses. You're going to have new entrepreneurs. You're going to have new opportunities. But we really have to focus on, you know, allowing that ferment, encouraging that ferment, providing and bolstering support for those new businesses, those new mom and pops. Um, we, we have to we have to stop thinking just about the market. We have to recognize that the market has never operated independently of government and that one of the core functions of government this time is going to have to be to try to provide these these people with opportunities because this digital life is exploding and the digital platforms do provide people with, with little capital enormous opportunities. But 
you know, they need a little bit of help. They need a little bit of help. Otherwise, what ends up happening is you have a winner-take-all model. The, the digital economy has turned out to be very conducive to a winner-take-all model. You know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, uh, Apple, Microsoft, those five companies dominate the digital economy you know, like 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 it was. I mean, I don't think Rockefeller Standard Oil ever had this kind of this kind of dominance. And so that's where again government comes in to help marry the promise of the digital revolution to the opportunities for 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 newcomers. One thing that struck me, and I know in your next chapter you 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 say Aristotle was right. We are social animals. The real purpose of the chapter is to make sure that no one reads last rights over your beloved cities, you being a great <laughs> advocate for cities. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, all of this operating remotely um, has, at least in Chicago, led to um, a diminishment of uh commercial real estate downtown that people are sort of evacuating their downtown headquarters, they're, they're finding it's better, easier to work remotely. Um, and, you know, I worry about that, uh, even though you uh, assure us that our, na- our, our nature will lead us to want to be together, and there are economic reasons perhaps to do that. But I, I worry that um, uh, you're going to see a big uh, sort of disinvestment uh, in sort of central cities as as uh, people take advantage of the digital age to make work more remote. Yeah, look, it's going to be a new hybrid model. And the point, the fundamental point I'm making is perhaps to, to be more wonky about it is that metro areas will continue to be the places that drive the economic activity and the economic engine of the world. That there's there's so much evidence about this, that people make more money when they live uh, work, compete, cooperate with other human beings, and that tends to be in cities. But, you know, look, we may go through a period like we did in the 50s and 60s, where people find that they'd rather live a little bit further away, uh, come, you know, come in to work in the city, but this time they don't have to come in every day at nine o'clock and leave at five. They can come in two days a week or one, one week a month, and that you're going to see a kind of hybrid life. And that means that the downtowns will have to reinvent themselves. And I do believe that fundamentally, you're right. Commercial real estate will have to rethink itself. Maybe what, what, what's going to happen is you're going to get some of those office buildings converted into, into residential buildings. Some of that will become entertainment space. You know, the city become, might become more of a magnet for live in-person events, conferences and things like that more than it is a routine day-to-day place where work, where people work. This actually mirrors what life used to look like in the, you know, before the Industrial Revolution and certainly before the 19th century. The, 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 the modern office is essentially a white-collar version of the factory. Everyone comes in at the same time. They do the same thing from nine to five, and then they go back home. That's not what life was like before. I mean, you know, the 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 tradesman lived in the same place he worked in the farmer who lived in the, in the on his farm the the shopkeeper lived above the store and so maybe we're coming back to some kind of hybrid model like that and cities will have to adjust and by the way the cities that make it will be the ones that are well led and well managed this you know it doesn't none of the, the fact that i think cities will continue to thrive doesn't mean new york and chicago will thrive i mean every any particular city has to get it right, has to get the its financing right, has to make sure it's well managed. But I but I think in general, 
we are not going to a world where everyone is going to say, you know, get, go into cabins in Idaho. I think they are going to, you know, you're going to find that people want to be in, and by the way, the fastest growing cities in, in America right now are all in the South and Southwest. Um, you know, so there are cities that are thriving. They just happen to be in Florida, Texas, and Arizona. The challenge, uh, as well as the opportunity of automation, of AI, uh, I mean, we have become ingenious enough to invent machines that could replace us all, or at least much of what we do. And that creates challenges uh, for making sure that there's enough productive work for people to find a sense of not only to support themselves, although that's a piece of it, but also to fulfill themselves. Yeah, that's that's one of the you know the great challenge of artificial intelligence that people talk a lot about is what if the machines start to rule over us? And I think it's a real concern. The more I've I've studied and researched it, we have to think very hard about how do you infuse uh, artificial intelligence systems that are now going to be used everywhere? How do you infuse them with morals, with ethics, and how do you infuse them with human controls? But the but the more practical problem is the one you raise, which is. Uh, you know, how do you get it so that people have work, they have a sense of dignity, they have a sense of pride, uh, and they have income? Um, I was struck by, you know, I think, I don't, I'm not sure it's in the book, but somebody was telling me that, you know, making a movie trailer used to be considered one of the great intangible arts of, of, of filmmaking, of the editing, because, you know, if you think about it, it's a fairly complicated challenge. You've got two, you've got two minutes. You've got to give people a sense of the film, Every major star has to be in it, uh, but you can't give away too much. You have to tease enough and reveal enough, you know, that it's titillating, but not so much that, that, that people feel like they don't have to go. So that was always regarded as something that human beings could do. Well, guess what? Artificial intelligence now makes most movie trailers and they make them better than the, than the human beings, at least so I've been told by people who, uh, who are familiar with this because they basically fed the machine you know, several thousand movie trailers and showed them the ones that seemed to work well and the computer figured it out. And now the computer makes, you know, fantastic uh, trailers. Now, if that's the case, what is the guy who, you know, and this was, this is not a simple routine filing job that somebody was doing. This is a kind of, you know, it did seem to require, this did, this was thought of as an art. So if something that was thought of as an art can, can be done by artificial intelligence, where does that, that leave us? You know, uh, it's something we have to figure out uh, what, the, what the right balance is. How do we create a balance between the computer enhancing human productivity and potential, but not destroying it? Yeah, that also requires some sort of collective uh, understanding, uh, which... Um you know, which is hard to enforce in a, uh, in an environment in which people are distrustful uh, and very much focused on their own interests, which leads me to lesson eight, globalization is not dead. I don't, I'm, I'm, you make a, co a compelling argument that we are so far down the road and we are so integrated as, as, as a planet globally, um, economically, and in other ways that you really can't, uh, unravel it. Uh, I didn't know whether that comes into the same category as your uh, commitment to cities uh, and how much was based on on, on your scholarship. But uh, but you make a compelling argument. But you know that there is this fundamental anti-globalist 
sort of sentiment that's driving a lot of the populism we've seen, particularly populism on the left and right, but the populism, nationalism, populism on the right, we've seen emerge here. We've seen it emerge in, in Europe. Um, tell me, tell me why you're, uh, why you feel that this will not, uh, topple the momentum of, of globalization. You know, the funny thing about globalization, David, is that everyone pockets the gains and everyone uh, quetches about the about the problems, uh, if I can use a technical term. Yes, um, no, that's good, 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 good Yiddish there. Yeah. So look at the vaccine, okay? Everyone loves this amazing thing that we've managed to do. Most, you know, even 10 years ago, if you'd asked somebody, how long will it take to, to put together a vaccine to a new disease? They would have said, oh, 15 years. We've done it in nine months. In in a year, we have five vaccines with you know success rates that are just off the yeah, charts. Phenomenal. Why? Why? It's all because of globalization. First of all, the entire scientific enterprise was global. They 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 revealed it in China. They they sequenced it. Then the Germans started to do work on it. The Americans started. Everyone's sharing information with everyone. Then you get to the funding done all over the world. You have you have funding from the U.S., funding from the European Union, you know, funding from India to China. Then you have the production. Now, this is to me the most interesting one. You know, all of if everyone was so upset that we were having all this stuff being made from in other places, so we were dependent on China for face masks and where were you know why weren't we getting PPE? The only reason we are going to be able to produce three to five billion doses of vaccines in the next eighteen months is because of globalization. 60% of the stuff is being made in India. The glass vials are being made in China. Everything is being made everywhere. And it's moving around helter-skelter in exactly the way that globalization performs. But that's, that's why we're going to save the world from this pandemic. So it's a good metaphor in a way because there's all kinds of things like that that are happening. So there's very good research, uh, by the way, David, that shows that the, the lowering of cost, the costs of, of food, uh, clothing, you know, the very basic items for people to live has, has has happened in Western countries at a dramatic rate because of globalization. You know, you walk into a Walmart or a Costco and you can see that this stuff is all made in China, made in India, made in Bangladesh. Now, that benefits poor people at a rate three times higher than it does rich people. You know, we might be still willing to buy organic this, organic that, handmade this, handmade that. But if you're if you're cost conscious, you are going to find yourself going, you know, taking advantage of all these benefits of globalization. So, and yet, you know, as a matter of politics, though, that there is uh, also tremendous resentment toward China, in particular, uh, over the loss of manufacturing and and the perception that they have stolen uh, jobs uh, and uh, and business from. Uh, from the U.S. I mean, that is a, you know, Trump's anti-China rhetoric landed. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you speak in the book, your lesson number nine is the world's becoming more bipolar. That, that is going to be a defining question, how we approach globalization and particularly the competition with China and manage the politics around it in an intelligent way. Absolutely. I mean, and I don't, I don't downplay it at all. As you know, I mean, ever since David Ricardo, the basic problem with, with, with trade is that the benefits are, sh- are distributed widely, but, sh- but in a shallow manner across everybody in the population. But the costs are concentrated and deep. 
So there's one town in you know Youngstown or Ohio yeah, Newton, where the, Iowa, everything yeah. goes right goes out of business, and the fact that everybody got a ten percent tax cut because of the lowering costs of of, of food and and, and clothing, yeah, uh, it it doesn't it's not that it's difficult to visualize, and politics responds to those narrow localized focus costs. So so it's a, it's a huge challenge. I I I, I totally agree. But look, at the end of the day, people want growth. People want raising standards of living. People want the ability to raise their incomes. And, you know, we're 4% of the world's population. Uh, the only way we can do it in a sustainable way is to engage with the other 96% and to sell and buy and have them invest and invest in their, in their uh, companies. Obviously, there are some cases where things went badly and some deals that were made that were, that were bad. But generally speaking, that's a... That's a very small part of the problem. You know, the, the most of the jobs, for example, lost in places like Youngstown, Ohio, and again, there's good research on this, was because of uh, a technology, not trade. I mean, so for example, as you know, manufacturing output in the United States has actually kept going up. It's not that we are manufacturing less, it's that we are using fewer people to manufacture. You go into some no, of no, these plants, Right, I'm sure you've been in them. There are like 10 people there, and they're all software engineers running the machines that run the machines that run the machines. So, you, you know, you're going to have to get around that. And, but you're right that the central challenge in some ways in international uh, terms that we face is how do you keep this machine going uh, while at the same time allowing people to feel that they are benefiting, allowing people to feel that they are maintaining their you know, a lot of it is the discontinued. People feel like their their lives are going away, their world is going away, uh, and that's tied up with the, uh, with ethnic and and cultural and racial changes, right? So, it's it's a lot of it, by the way, is that ethnic and cultural and racial change. I always look at Japan as an interesting example, right? It's an advanced industrial country that is going through all the same issues of trade and technology we talk about, but it does not have a a Trump-like populist movement that is present in almost every Western country. Why? What is the one thing Japan doesn't have? <laughs> immigrants. Right. Right. So when you when because immigrants are in a sense the face of globalization, of global change, of of a changing world. So when you don't, it, it's very easy to turn it all into these horrible foreigners. Whether they're the horrible foreigners in China. I mean, what was Trump's campaign rhetoric? Trump's campaign rhetoric was the Chinese are taking your factories, the Mexicans are taking your jobs, and the Muslims are trying to kill you. I'm going to beat them all up, and you'll be great again. I mean, that was in yes. three lines, Trump's, right? So in a sense, I mean, part of it is navigating through the cultural piece of this. I don't think people are as anti-trade as they are anti-foreign when they, when they feel uncertain they they want to latch on to another you know the other and if you can paint some other who looks different and talks different and worships different gods then you've got a political jackpot especially if you're a demagogue so so part of it is going to na be navigating that and we, and you know we've got this huge challenge with china as you say i i write a lot about this because it's the first time the united states faces a real peer competitor this is this is not the Soviet Union. This is a country that is that is as good as we are at artificial intelligence, at quantum computing. Their financial technology se sector is better than than ours. We, you know, so we're going to have to shape up. You write in your epilogue: economic development is creating ever 
greater climate risks for demographic and other reasons. Countries are growing more slowly. The rich are getting richer. The big are getting bigger. Technology is moving so fast for the first time in history. Human beings might lose control of their own creations. Globalization will persist, but the opposition to it is growing louder and louder. Nations are becoming more parochial. The U.S. and China are headed toward a bitter and prolonged confrontation. Um, but we can make choices that shape and alter these trends. And at the end of the day, you offer yourself as an optimist uh, about all of that. After all of that big windup, you feel like we can, uh, and, and I get the sense that you feel like we will make uh, the right choices. Tell me why you ultimately, after examining all of these challenges and opportunities, you think on balance, uh, uh, this, this story will work out well. Fundamentally, nobody changes when things are going well. Nobody fixes the roof when it's shining. Uh, and the very fact that we are facing all these pressures uh, and that the pandemic in particular has so disoriented and dis dislodged us from our comfort zone gives us an enormous opportunity. You know, you only change in moments of crisis. You only change when things are already unsettled. You only change when you already see that there is, you know, there are all these these settled practices that are now unsettled, and it is the it is the 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 the, the fact that you stare the, the the you know the reality in his face and and you see these negative trends and you worry about them that makes you try to avert them. You need a crisis to make it happen. And and to me, the most powerful part of the book, you know, if I can say so myself, is when I went back and realized that, you know, just think about those people who went through World War I and World War II, you know, the Eisenhower's, Roosevelt's uh, of the world, uh, uh, Churchill's, and they come out of a period of 25 years when they've seen World War I, the Great Depression, hyperinflation, World War II, the rise of fascism, the Holocaust, and they come out of it saying, we have to be really idealistic. We have to be really ambitious. We have to really make sure that we fix this world. So it, it, it made me realize that, you know, it's, it's in bad times when you've seen the worst that you can summon up the, the resources of mind and spirit to say, we really have to do better. And we really have to aim for nothing less than something truly ambitious that makes the world a better place. Uh, which is the ultimate uh, lesson for a post-pandemic world. Uh, Fareed Zakaria, it is always a pleasure. I, I learn something every time I read you and every time I speak with you, and I so appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Yeah, honor and pleasure, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.